So today marks the beginning of the season of Advent. It's the season of coming or expectation or arrival. And it's interesting that probably as we start this season, uh, it's the idea that God at some point will make all the wrongs right, that everything will be restored as it's meant to be. And maybe this weekend for some of you felt like something had arrived. For some of you, if you're a Michigan football fan, it seemed like a... But let's not get ahead of ourselves because we know all is right in the world because the Lions lost again. That's how this works. Michigan State won, Notre Dame won, and I'm, I, I, honestly, I'm wearing my Notre Dame socks today for those of you who care. So, um, But here's the reality for us. We long for something. We hope for something. And when we're in this season of Advent, what we're saying is we expect we're waiting on the return of the king, and the king is Jesus. But all of us wait on different stuff, right? We have a hope for what will be. Christmas is filled with hope, right? As a kid, you long for something to come under the tree that you had dreamed of, you'd written on a list, that you had maybe prayed about, you'd thrown something in your mailbox, that you were really hoping something came that you really wanted. We make lists about things we hope for. Sometimes those hopes are realized, and sometimes they are not. Right, I was probably about 10 or 11, maybe probably 10 or 11. I, there's a video of it, unfortunately, and I've had to watch it several times in my life. Um, but Christmas morning, uh, I opened all my gifts, and I wanted one thing that was not there. I wanted a pair of Chicago Bulls basketball shorts. Now, I don't, a complete side note, um, for those of you who care, Jordan is much better than LeBron. Uh, long conversation, we can have another day, but they're just going to throw that out there. But I wanted these Chicago Bulls shorts, and they were not there. I did not get them. And as many 10, 11-year-old boys will do, I was pretty ungrateful. In fact, there's actually a video of me being ungrateful that I've had to endure numerous Christmas holidays with my family. My dad will press play and make me watch it again. And I want to crawl in a corner because I was so ungrateful because what I hoped for did not come. Some of you are hoping for all kinds of stuff this Christmas season. Some of you are hoping for snow, and you're sick. <laughs> I hope for sunny and 70, but I'm, it's unlikely I'm going to have my wish fulfilled. Yours is much more likely. But hope is one of the most powerful things we can experience. We all hope for something. But too often the season is marked by hope from things from the North Pole more than things that bring lasting hope. We all hope for something. Maybe it's we're hoping for that vacation, we're longing for the weekend, but here's the problem. The vacation ends and Monday comes again. Those hopes are fleeting. They're short. So what is hope? Here's a few definitions of hope. Hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Hope is a person or thing that may help or save someone. Hope is grounds for believing that something good may happen. Hope is a feeling of trust. Hope is to want something to happen or be the case. Hope is living that the darkest moments of our lives do not have to define us. Hope is looking forward to a day that all the wrongs may be made right. Hope is powerful. What are things you've hoped for that you've seen? 
What are your greatest hopes? What are your greatest hopes for your family? What are your greatest hopes for relationships with others? What does it look like to live from a place of hoping that you will live in such a way that you'll live in relationship with Jesus and you'll see hope manifest itself in your life every single day? In what ways have you experienced hope fulfilled in your life? In what ways have you and I experienced hope unfulfilled? Hope's one of these unique things for us, right? That we can sometimes feel empty when hopes don't come true, when we hope for something and it doesn't happen, we want something to change our life. But what if there is a hope from a story that is so compelling it can not only change your life, but it can change the world in which we live. And that hope is really what the Christmas season is all about. Hope that somehow in the person of Jesus, what could be, what is, and what is to come is found in a way that we can live with hope. See, there's this guy named Paul uh, who became a follower of Jesus, and Paul really did experience all that hope had for his life. Paul believed in one way, encountered Jesus, and his life was radically flipped upside down in such a way that Paul began to live from this place of radical hope that for all eternity he could know God and be in relationship with the divine that would change his life. He so believed it, he dedicated his life, was killed for it, and what he spent the rest of his life doing once he encountered Jesus was starting churches. He started churches all over the known world at the time. And he did that because he believed that there was something that he'd encountered where who someone is is not who someone has to be, that you can be radically transformed by the gift of the grace of God. And Paul had been so changed that he began to write about it, to tell people about it, to invite others to experience the thing he had experienced. And what he wanted other people to know was this, that there is a way you can encounter God in such a way that, that God desires to create a people who are so known by their love for one another that it can radically create a different picture in the world in which he lived. A picture of the way God desires to see people live among one another. Something that others who aren't yet a part of that community of faith could hope in. And so I use this phrase, not lightly, the local church is the hope of the world. Why? Because it is the hands and feet of Jesus. Now, I know some of you are going like, well, we are pretty awesome. Like, so I get, I get that. But here's the thing. God desired to create a people that were so radically defined by hope and love and living and looking like the person of Jesus that it might radically change the entire world. And so Paul dedicated his life to helping people come to know that through the local church, God desires to redeem and restore and make all things new. That was Paul's hope. And so today we're looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And Paul wrote this letter as 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. We'll be there in just a second. But he wrote this letter with really kind of three goals. His three goals were this, that um, he wanted to encourage um, and reassure fellow Christians in the midst of what was going on and persecution and all kinds of other things that God is still present. He wanted to teach sound doctrine and theology. And so what we mean by that is, like, um, it's really easy if you, if you know this, like, if you ever played the game Telephone when you are a kid, that sometimes someone will say something and it will get twisted on down the line. And so Paul's going, okay, some things have been twisted, and we want to help you re-understand who God is and how you can know God. 
And so he, does, he wants to help reorient the church in that way. And then he says this, he, his goal throughout the letter is that they would work quietly waiting in hope for the return of Jesus. And so here is what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says this, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Now, I know some of you are going, wait, you said you were talking about hope, and the word hope is not seen one time in that entire passage, and you would be right. Hope is not there, but what if, what if we find in this that Paul is sending this letter hoping that people will begin to look and sound and live more like the person of Jesus? What if what we find in that is actually hope-filled? All right, this past Thursday was Thanksgiving, and, and many of us gathered around tables and with families or with friends, and we shared stories and laughter, and and at lots of tables, ours as well, like this question was asked, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? And this is what Paul begins with by telling us what he's thankful for. What Paul is thankful for is he's excited about the spiritual growth growth that's happening among the church in Thessalonica. He is excited for what he sees among these people. He is thankful for the work God has done, God is doing. He's thankful for their growth and their efforts to be the community of faith that represents God's love in the world. He's thankful that the church in Thessalonica has open arms. Do we? Do we have open arms? arms? Do you? Do I? Paul is thankful that in the midst of imperfections, the church was still functioning as it was created to function. And so I have this question today, right, for you and I. Um, how often are you and I thankful for the good of others? Right? We're often thankful for what we have, but like Paul doesn't begin with, hey, I'm so thankful for what you've done to me. What Paul's saying here is, I'm so thankful for what God is doing in you. I'm so thankful what's happened in your life. I'm so thankful for your church. What Paul wants us to understand is this. Celebrating others is a win for us and them. Right, there's something freeing about living in such a way where you celebrate the goodness in others, right? How many of us, if we're honest, we see someone else get something good or something great happen, and we're like, oh, good for them. What about me? Why didn't I get that? Why didn't I meet him? Or why didn't I meet her or why didn't I have that? And why didn't my husband get that raise? Or why didn't my wife get that job? Or why, did, why, why not me? And it's not to say that God doesn't want us to have those things or live towards those things or seek after some of those things. But if we don't want to celebrate the goodness that happens in the lives of others, honestly, then we live as people who are narcissists. And everything revolves around us. What Paul has embraced is to know God's love invites him to celebrate what happens in the lives of others. And so then it moves Paul to pray for opportunity. 
opportunity that he would be able to further the work of God in the world, opportunity that that church would be able to further the work of God in the world. And he prays for this. In fact, I skipped over a couple words there, right, when Paul's praying for opportunity. Um, The words I skipped over were this, night and day. Paul prayed night and day. He said, we pray night and day. In other words, all the time. We live from this place of prayer that we desperately desire for people to know you. Paul was committed to a life of prayer. And what we find is there's a deep connection from prayer and living as a person of hope. This deep connection that we find that if we'll live as a person of prayer. And see, Paul prays in ways that I think are honestly helpful for you and I. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I wish I was a better prayer. I don't know, how, that's not really, really a word. Like prayer is a word, but prayer is not really a word, but I'm making it one. Right, I wish I was a better prayer. Um, I wish I was better at praying. I wish I did it more. I wish it was more and more a rhythm of my life. I, I don't know about you, but that's true for me. Sometimes I feel guilty that I haven't prayed enough or I should spend more time in prayer. And I'll long for God to speak in a way that I can understand and hear. And so I'll, I'll know I should just pray more. But if you're like me, and maybe you're not, maybe you're just probably more spiritual than I am. Like, I feel guilty about praying for little stuff. Right? Like, oh, that's just so trivial. I don't need to pray about that. And it's not that Paul's not saying we shouldn't pray for those things, because the truth is, I think what Paul's trying to say is Paul prays for everyday, ordinary things all the time. Just for an opportunity to have a conversation. Paul is praying for an opportunity for a conversation. Now, he's not praying, God, I really would like to have, you know, a good cheeseburger for lunch today. I mean, no, that probably is a waste of your time. But, but what if you and I begin to pray about, like, God, help me to live as a person who has opportunity to invest in the lives of others. God, help me to pray as a person who hears your voice, who shares your love, who embraces your kingdom in my everyday life. What would happen if you and I prayed for ordinary, everyday things like that? The problem for most of us is we wait until we have really big issues in our life. Right? Like, my kids jumped off the deep end, I'm going through a divorce, my marriage is not good, my friendships are broken, I'm getting fired or I've been fired. Right? We, we wait till the very end, till instead of praying all the way through this season where God might actually be able to speak in and change our hearts, we wait till the place of despair. I'm like, huh, God didn't speak into that. He's going, you didn't ask me to. But what if, what if you and I lived as a people of prayer? Here's the thing. Paul prays for something very specific. He prays that the people will fulfill the law of love. Huh. What does that mean? Fulfill the law of love. Do you and I live, do you and I live from the place of law of love? Like, that sounds like it's kind of difficult. Have you met some of the people I know? You want me to love them? I'm supposed to love these people who I don't really even like? Yes, the answer is yes, for all of us. Love, love that Paul's talking about is this. When Jesus asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In the same way, love your neighbor as yourself. We talked last week, who's your neighbor? Everyone. So you're called to love everyone as if they are a reflection of God because they were created in the divine image of God. We're called to see Jesus in everyone we meet. Everyone, period. Everyone, the face of this earth, we're called to love as Christ loves. I didn't say it was easy. 
it was easy, Paul probably wouldn't have prayed for it. But it's right. And so how does Paul invite us in to do that? What, what might it look like for you and I? What if we began each day with prayer? What if prayer was just a rhythm of our life, right? We do lots of stuff every day, right? I brush my teeth for two minutes twice a day. You know how I know that, and it's exactly two minutes because my toothbrush vibrates and it goes off at two minutes. So I know it's two minutes twice a day every time, right? Two minutes. I eat usually two to three times a day, right? I'm pretty regular on that. I put my clothing on the same way every day. I do the same thing in the shower. I have the same routine every morning. I do the same things all the time. But what if prayer became a rhythm of our life? What if it was a rhythm of your life? What if you and I committed to living with routines that daily we committed to prayer? All right, so there's all these, these um, there are lines you occasionally hear that you're like, ooh, that's really good, and you like write it down and... and um, you know, it's, it's not the first time cell phones gone off. It won't be the last time. But, right, so, so have you noticed that, that sometimes lines jump out to you? And I heard this line, I think just yesterday, actually. And so I, I threw it in my notes for today because I, maybe it was Friday, I don't remember. But, but it was really good. And I thought I wanted to share it because it made sense about what, why do we need to make sure our daily practices reflect the life we want to live? Here's the line. Um, we don't learn from the head down. We learn from the feet up. James Smith is a, as a um, professor at Calvin College, and he's written several books on, on what it looks like to be shaped um, as the people of God. And I love this line, right? We don't learn from the head down, but from the feet up. Here's what he's trying to say. He, he actually unpacks it a lot better than I'm going to today. But here's what, what he goes on to say. We can say we believe something all day long. But if we don't live it out, we don't actually believe it. I hear, I hear lots of people tell me, like, hey, I believe in God. Cool. Does your life reflect it in some way, shape, or form? Because if not, then you don't really believe. I mean, you believe like the devil believes, but you don't believe it's not real for you. It's not something that matters in your life. We learn from the feet up. In other words, by how we live. And so here's the challenge for that. I was thinking, like, well... Like, I tell my kids lots of things, like, hey, I think church matters, I think it's important to follow Jesus, I think prayer is important, but does the activity of my life reflect in a way what is the most important thing in my life or not? I hope it does. And honestly, for most of us, we have to probably step back and go, okay, um, am I investing my time in ways that what I want my time to be invested in matters, right? My... Every, every Sunday morning I get this weird message. I don't know if you guys, some of you might get this too. Uh, my phone lets me know how much average per day I looked at it. Every Sunday morning I get this, this message that lets me know. And I always click on it because I, I want to know. I'm just curious. Part of me is just curious. But the other part of me is like, I want to know. And then I want to look and see where was that time spent. Right? Sometimes it's like reading. Like, oh, okay, that's probably okay. Um, like sometimes it's like the Bible app on my phone. Sometimes it's this. Sometimes it's social media. Like sometimes it's other stuff. Huh. Right. We learn from the feet up by what we actually do, not from the head down. Now, you, now going to, are you saying that we don't learn if, our, if we don't believe something different? No, no, no. You've got to believe different to probably live differently. That's kind of how that works, too. They're connected. But when it comes to investing in a life that we think really matters, when living for something so others might see God in us, 
We live it. Our behavior, our footwork, if you will, has to reflect it. And so what we're wanting to understand this is we're invited to a life of prayer. What would happen if you and I lived a life of prayer? What if the greatest part of our daily walk with God was prayer? And how, based on this passage, might we pray? I think N.T. Wright does a good job. I just have two quotes of his we're going to read back to back and just read them with me. Prayer that is grounded in the character of God as revealed in Jesus is prayer that is learning to depend on the goodness, the generosity, the sovereign love of this God as unveiled in Jesus' saving death and triumphant resurrection. He goes on to say, Prayer that acknowledges this God, this Lord, is prayer that will grow in confidence. If God is truly God, and if Jesus is truly the Lord of the world, we don't pray like people who are hoping that this God, this Lord, may somehow be able to pull off a clever move despite the power of other gods or lords. We pray with confidence to the one who is supreme over all and who can do far more than all we can ask or think. This is to pray, to believe that not only will God bring heaven and earth together, but that Jesus will be central to this new world that God desires to create. I'll say it this way, because we've talked about some of us have gone through some difficult days. Um, we pray that with the hope that the hells on earth would give way be overcome by heaven. I don't know about you, um, but I've seen some hells on earth. Some of you have experienced hell on earth. But we believe in a God who is present with us in the midst of that, who comes to us and is near us, and that somehow through the gift of heaven breaking into the here and now, that God can overcome even those hells we have experienced. And Paul says, well, how do, we, how do we help other people experience that? How do we help live into that? And this is what he says in verse 12. He says this, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May our love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. Does our love overflow? Are we praying that God would increase our ability to love? Are we praying that our love would overflow to those all around us? Are we praying those things or not? Because what Paul is trying to get across this is if we'll be so shaped by the love of God, what we hope for will even change. Right? Because then what we pray for, what we hope for, looks radically different the more we come to know Jesus. why he uses this phrase at the end. He says, so then you will be holy and blameless. But here's the hard part. We can't do this by ourselves. Some of us are like pretty, pretty independent. We're like, we're disciplined. We can figure stuff out. We're, you know, like I could just say you're men. No, um, right? Like we can do this unless it comes to fixing a car or something in my house. And then I got to call somebody else. But, but when it comes to my faith, 
When it comes to your faith, I, I can't do it alone, and neither can you. I need the community of faith, and I need the work of God's Spirit in my life, because without that, I cannot do it. And neither can you. I don't know that we can follow Jesus without one another. I think we can believe in him, but I don't know that we can follow him without each other. And then he says this, and there'll be a day when Jesus comes with his holy ones. It's like, whoa, okay, what does that mean? Well, how about I just make it kind of easy for all of us? Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 is all about Jesus, or about the Lord coming with his holy ones. In other words, it's about when God will reign as king in all of creation. And so what Paul is saying is this, this This God who mentioned this in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, this God has fulfilled it in the person of Jesus, and he will again come because this will come true, that Jesus will come again, that we have this hope and the expectation that God has come in the person of Jesus, and he will come again. And so what then do we do? How do we live as a people full of hope? Well, what if there are just three things that might be helpful for you and I? Uh, We live focused on God. Make sure that's the focus of our life. Looking eagerly towards God's future. Not just our future, but what, God, what does God's future look like and how can I live into that? And then finally, praying for the work of God's spirit in the present. Here and now. See, what we believe is this, that um, the spirit can radically change us, but it can also change the whole world in which we live. We believe the Spirit of God can change our families and our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces. We believe that if we live with the kind of hope that Jesus is going to come again, we can live as if heaven is present here in the midst of all the hells. We can live as a people of hope about what God will do. With the hope that Jesus has come and is coming again for all people. And we will be people who bring hope by how we live. Now, I, I was thinking of a story today. Um, I would love to be able to tell you this person's name and all kinds of stuff around the background of the story, but I just, I just can't. Um, when I first got out of college, I, I worked as a youth pastor, but then a guy in our, our church was connected to a local counseling center that was um, kind of state-funded, and so he said, hey, Aaron, would you want to make some extra money? Yes. Um, and so he hired me to be an on-call crisis counselor. And so I would be on call, literally on call, from 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. the next day, and I would do it two days a week. And if I got a phone call, I would then have to go. And I would go, sometimes I would go to someone's house, sometimes I would go to the hospital, and my job was to assess, is this person suicidal enough that they need to go to a hospital, or can they just stay where they are? Like, do they need to be admitted or not? And so the state was required to have someone who represented the state there, not just the hospital worker, not just the, the parent or whoever. So, so I would go, and um, I'll never forget this, this one boy. He was probably seven or eight years old. And I walked in. It was the second floor of the hospital in Kankakee, Illinois, and the second floor was the behavioral ward. And he had been suicidal. And I walked in, and I looked at this little boy, And I sat down in the chair next to him, and he's sobbing. And he reaches out and grabs my hand. 
I've never met this kid. And he just holds my hand. Right? This is state funded group. I'm not supposed to pray with kids. I don't really care at this point. So I start praying for this little boy. And I cry with this little boy. I can't, I can't sign for him to be released. Like, there's no chance. He's a mess. And I will never forget. I don't know his name. I don't remember the time of day. I don't remember any of those kind of things. But I will never forget the look on his face when it was time for me to go. And he kept looking at me, holding my hand tighter, saying, don't go. Don't leave. Please don't leave me. And I felt so helpless. I would have given anything to just take that kid with me. There was, I, I mean, I'm 23 years old. There's not much I could do, right? But I couldn't take him with me. But to this day, I still remember the way I felt so helpless in that moment. That I would have done anything for this kid. He just wanted someone to hold him. I don't know what brought him to that place that day. I, I don't know what hells he had experienced, but I know they were not good. And I left there, and I remember thinking, God, I don't know what the rest of my life's going to look like, but... I, I want to speak as best that I can into a situation where maybe we can offer some hope where there has seemed to be none. So I tell that story today for this reason. You and I have nothing to give hope until we come to know Jesus in such a way that so changes us that we can then become people who give hope in those moments, who speak into broken situations, and we give glimpses of the heaven that God desires to be seen in the world in the midst of hell. And you and I are invited to become a people of prayer who pray in such a way that heaven breaks into the here and now. And we live with the hope that no matter how dark something may seem, that all it takes, all it ever takes, is light and darkness must run. Have you noticed this? Right? If we turn on the lights and I took that candle and I walked around, wherever I went would be light. So what might happen if the people of God truly became the people of God? What might happen if love began to overflow? What if we began to pray in every moment of our life, night and day we prayed? What if we became the people of mercy for those who had no mercy? What if we offered glimpses of hope in the midst of what seems like hell? What if you and I were a people who invited Others to come to know the God that we have come to know. What if you and I were people so radically defined by the mercy and grace of God? What if you and I were so defined by hope that we could help give hope to others? Do you or I know that hope? Pray with me this morning. Father, we come before you today. And we believe in a God who can light up the darkness that somehow in the midst of whatever we have experienced, that you can offer us hope and healing, that somehow beyond our wildest imaginations, that you invite us to be near. And so, Father, we ask today that you would speak into our life, into our mind, into our hope, in such a way that we would come to know you. And so, Father, we ask that this day, in this moment, you might open our eyes and our ears. And that we might be able to walk into spaces where little boys are broken and scared and give them words of hope. Not only we give them words, but we'd find ways to speak into their broken situations, to offer tangible expressions of love. 
And so, Father, we gather in these moments with that belief and that hope. And we find that hope in the person of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.